0: Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist. I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now today I'm speaking to Laura Plauka who is a primary school special education teacher based in Baltimore, Maryland, USA. Now, Law struggled with body image issues and disordered eating from a very young age. But at the time, these issues were quite overlooked as she was struggling with other aspects of her mental health. As a teenager, Law's eating became increasingly under focus, but very much with a kind of weight focus on this. Law was sent off to summer camps where she was encouraged to follow restrictive diets and became very addicted to the weight loss process. Law also sadly learned many disordered eating habits from her peers when she was on camp. Following camp, not surprisingly, Law fell into cycles of restriction, binge eating and purging and her relationship with food was not in a great place. Also, she began to experience further weight gain and this started to impact her mobility and also her mental health and physical health overall. Law hit rock bottom and entered an inpatient eating disorder treatment center in North Carolina for six weeks. During and after this treatment, she began work with a therapist who really helped her on her journey in healing her relationship with food. However, following this therapy, Law was still continuing to experience problems with her health, from her weight, and this was really impacting mental health, physical health, and leading to lots of different problems. So after much thought and consideration, Laura decided to have bariatric surgery, and she is pleased to say now, a year and a half on after the surgery, that she is in the most healthy relationship with food that she's ever been, and she can now respond to hunger, fullness, movement, and rescues, and is living a full life of balance. So Laura is here today to talk about her recovery journey from disordered eating, the healing of her relationship with food, and the experience of bariatric surgery, and how she navigates all of this to have found the peaceful place that she is, is in with food and her body today. So let's get to the interview. Hi, Laura, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Hi, Harriet. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great.
1: So, Laura, could you just introduce yourself, please, to the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. My name is Laura Plowker. This is my first time appearing as a guest on a podcast. So, looking for a little grace here, which I'm sure I will find in this amazing community. I am in my mid-20s. I am a teacher by profession and like to play around on social media with food content creation, which celebrates my recovered relationship with food and recovery from my eating disorder.
0: Okay, now lovely. Thank you, Law. And what is it that you teach? Are you a primary school teacher?
1: Yes, I teach really young students, quite a wide range, actually, special education. Um, So I teach every subject, but to students with disabilities in primary school.
0: Okay. Oh, wonderful. Okay. No, well, thank you for sharing that. And I know as well, I've looked at your Instagram and you have some (laughs) beautiful pictures of very delicious food quite frequently. (laughs) Is that something as well? Do you really enjoy the kind of presentation aspect of making the food look really appetizing and delicious? Absolutely. It actually
1: was a more recent thing that I started doing. I only started my Instagram page within, I started it in April, 2020, pretty early on in the pandemic. So it's been just under a year now of having this page up and live. And I did that because I was exploring what it could be like to celebrate my relationship with food that I had worked so hard to achieve as a daily celebration Mm. or celebrating multiple times a day just by putting together even the simplest meals if I took a moment to plate them and turn them into sort of just a a canvas for expression and expressing my gratitude for the relationship with food that I've been able to develop
0: Mm. oh that's lovely actually so it sounds like it's got a very sort of personal and meaningful twist on it hasn't it really without question Yeah, Mm -hmm. wonderful. Yeah, no, sure. And it sounds like it really kind of grounds you in the moment, doesn't it? And really appreciating the food that you're, yeah, you're consuming.
1: Absolutely. And it's a, it's a tricky balance too, of making sure I don't get too lost in the social media content creation of it all, especially because of the response to my page and the growth I've been so fortunate to have achieved of just members of different communities and niches. And people find my page through so many different ways. And it's really humbling, but it can lead to a lot of perfectionism. So I have to really make sure that I'm grounding myself in, am I making this plate for me or am I making it for my feed? Because the entire purpose of this page was to be making these things for me. So I often have to root and ground myself back in that initial mission and it's easier said than done. So it's been quite a journey this past year.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like it. And I think just so helpful actually just that you share that so openly because I think social media is great, isn't it? But it can be overwhelming. And I think it's so important, isn't it, to regularly just kind of think, why am I doing this to be, should I have that awareness and to kind of check in with yourself? Absolutely.
1: And i I didn't even have an Instagram, a personal Instagram or otherwise prior to starting this page, which now I do, but it's been a steep learning curve. And I definitely have moments where I need to just check myself and make sure that I am engaging meaningfully and appropriately in a way that doesn't compromise my recovery and my continued
0: progress and my balance. Mm, sure. Well, thank you just for sharing that openly because I think so many people listening will relate to that struggle of finding that balance. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. Of course. So, Law, I know that you're... Relationship with food hasn't always been great. And, you know, you've been quite on quite a journey, haven't you, to get to the point where you are today, where you're feeling much more healthy and balanced and in a much more peaceful place. But could you sort of just take us right back and tell us a little bit about your story and, you know, what your relationship with food was like when you were a little girl? Yeah, absolutely.
1: I mean, I've struggled with body image and a disordered relationship with food for quite literally as far back as i can remember i grew up in a health conscious household and i think in a lot of ways now that i've healed my relationship with food i learned a lot from growing up in a household with an emphasis on you know healthier foods but i think as a child who was definitely struggling with that more disordered aspect in a lot of ways it also fueled Restriction and shame, and a lot of those themes that go into disordered eating. And most notably, what I remember is when I was young and home alone, I would feel like I needed to sneak food from the kitchen. And that wasn't something that was necessarily pushed upon me so much as a reflection of just an eating disorder from a very early age but I was a highly active kid. I love to play. I know these <laughs> are largely British listeners, so I'm sorry, but I love to play soccer. <laughs> and I was active and playful. And because of that, I think my problems with food did go largely overlooked in favor of focusing on other mental health issues that I was very clearly struggling with. I am very open about The fact that I've struggled with a mood disorder and anxiety and depression, I was very fortunate and it's a reflection of privilege for sure that I was able to see a therapist from a very young age and begin sort of the mental health journey that would be an overarching theme in my life. But my eating disorder didn't become part of the picture until many, many, many years later until I was in, in high school, or I guess around the age of sixth form in the UK. Is that right? Yeah. And so I was around 15 years old and my disordered relationship with food became a discussion, but not something that was named as an eating disorder. And then it was more within regard to like fixing the problem, the weight I had gained as a result, I spent two summers starving myself at a summer camp that was designed to help women lose an extreme amount of weight, but it was through restriction and overactivity all under the guise of wellness. And both summers, the weight came off for sure, but I also learned there from other campers ways to exacerbate my weight loss before weigh-ins through eating disorder, self-harming behaviors. I became addicted to those behaviors and what was a lifelong disordered relationship with food really became a full-blown cycle of restricting and binging and purging through different methods. And as I'm sure many people who have struggled with these behaviors may have experienced, I began to consistently retain weight through this cycle, eventually putting on enough weight that my mobility was severely impacted. And I entered university in the deepest throes of my eating disorder. And in my first year there, my depression escalated to a point that I was actually unable to see a life past that moment. I Mm. couldn't maintain my grades or my relationships. I had turned to some really scary means of attempting weight loss, scarier than I had imagined possible for myself, including substance use and the use of laxatives to exacerbate weight loss And I really began to question whether I could have a happy life or a balanced life. And that combined with and exacerbated by my mental health issues really made me wonder whether my life was worth living. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm. Well, it sounds like that was a really, really low point for you then. Oh,
1: absolutely. That was my rock bottom. I only remember actually bits and pieces of the events of my first year in university and different relationships that I had and lost. And I don't know whether I wish I remember more of that time. I definitely think back to that time and recognize that it needed to happen. I'm a firm believer that everything happens for a reason Mm -hmm. because it was a direct result of hitting that rock bottom that I went to treatment, I sought help. And I'm extremely lucky to be just one of the 20% of people with an eating disorder who had access to treatment. I withdrew from my classes towards the end of my first year of school. And I was admitted to an inpatient eating disorder treatment facility in North Carolina, where I stayed for about six weeks. And I mean, I learned so much. And then I didn't stop learning. I really, I recognize that there are Vastly different treatment models, both in different countries and that people are able to pursue. And I know a lot of people who exit inpatient treatment and are discharged then seek some step down methods of treatment, like partial hospitalization Mm. or intensive outpatient. I was really far away from where I lived and I couldn't Mm. stay there. I didn't have somewhere to live. I was, you know, quite a few states away. So I, Went home and continued the work with my incredible therapist, who I'd been seeing for a lot of years. And she was waiting for me back at home and was ready to make a plan to continue my growth. And I am extremely proud to say that I have not used an eating disorder behavior since the day I left treatment, which is nearly seven years ago. And I do consider myself fully covered, fully recovered from my eating disorder. Now, that's just really it's a beautiful thing to be able to say. You can probably hear me smile because I'm not capable of saying that without smiling. Cause I really never thought, I really never thought that I would get to meet the version of myself that I am today.
0: Mm, sure. It sounds like it's been a, a real journey, hasn't it? With so many ups and downs. And Laura, I know you've got more to say on your journey here, but can I just pick up on a few sort of the, the points that you just talked about so far? Of course. Yeah. So Going back to when you were a little girl as well, and you say it sort of sounds like in your family, you know, as I think with many families, you know, sort of their sort of health was very much promoted, was it? And, you know, perhaps it felt that perhaps some foods were a bit more should be limited or that you couldn't perhaps eat those so freely? Yes, for sure.
1: I think that my family was extremely well intentioned in the lifestyle that they were bringing my sister and I up in my mom definitely is very health focused. And I think over the years, as I have recovered and healed my relationship with food, I think my mom has learned a lot also about what is, what is healthy and seeing health more as a balance. And I think she recognizes that too, which is, which is really awesome that we've yeah. been able to sort of grow together in that way. You know, I don't, I certainly don't think it was ever anybody's intent to draw focus to our weight, but even in my extended family, there are a lot of athletes and there are some doctors and there are, you know, people who have a focus on physical health as part of their professions, but also even if it's not at a professional level have, really made a point of creating a lifestyle for themselves and whether they approved of mine or I approved of theirs at the time when I was much less happy with myself and much less comfortable in my own skin. I cared a great deal about what my immediate and extended family thought about what I ate or what I looked like or what I wore. And that led to a lot of shame Mm -hmm. and really feeling like I needed to hide eating, even eating a normal amount or, you know, whatever you perceive that as Mm -hmm. um, eating whatever was put on your plate in a, you know, conventional family setting where you're young and you don't really have that autonomy over what's put in front of you. So I don't, I don't think anyone ever had malintent. I just have specific memories of the impact rather than the intent of Mm. All the concern that was expressed for me as I, as my weight fluctuated and as I was in various states of struggling or healing in my mental health, it's not really possible for anyone to have a complete picture of that because they're not mm. in my head. So I, <laughs> they were going off of what they saw. And there was a time where I really loved myself and I was very much recovered from my eating disorder, but also was extremely, extremely, extremely heavy to the point where it impacted my mobility. But I had healed my relationship with myself enough that I was happy to an extent, and happier Mm. than I had been at a lower weight. But that wasn't something that some members of my family could understand. And I found it was Almost impossible to explain. And at times, I didn't, most of the time, I didn't want to. Mm -hmm. So that was really an interesting experience to navigate. Mm. And I know, you know, I know that we'll end up speaking more about some choices I made and moves I made for myself down the line that really impacted the way I show up and am perceived in society. But I think that the foundation for understanding that weight and society, and the way society will treat you and hold you. I think that foundation was laid for me at a very early age.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it sounds so tough, doesn't it? Because I think, you know, it's absolutely really having compassion for families and parents. So I think, you know, I'm a parent myself. And, you know, I think we're always just trying to do the best that we can do. But I think, I guess it's just really sad, isn't it? Because I think for any child, if you feel shame, or you feel attention being drawn to you that you're not acceptable in some way, you know, because of your weight or how you look, it sounded like then it was a very sort of destructive cycle that you got in because I guess then you just felt very ashamed. You thought you kind of couldn't eat. You thought you had to sneak food. You felt more ashamed. And yeah, just just a really horrible cycle to break, isn't it? When you're kind of in that place.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I don't want to sit here either and and make excuses for some things that were said to me by people who really do love me in my childhood growing up that were objectively wrong, that there were objectively wrong things to say to a child. And at the same time, I'm able to recognize the intent and the lack of information behind those things that were said now that I am older and have engaged in my healing and also in a lot more of my journey. You know, I I just didn't have the same frame of reference. So the ability to, I don't know that I'll ever forget, but I have Long since forgiven, mm-hmm. because i think I think that it's extremely important to continued and lasting recovery to ensure that I've surrounded myself with people who love me and because they love me are willing to learn with me,
0: yeah, sure, yeah, well, I think there's so much wisdom there, law, and I think all credit to you for the fact that you've obviously done that, you know, difficult work and, you know, really, you know, worked on yourself, worked through these issues to come to that place today. No, thank you. I appreciate that. So can I just ask you, Laura, as well, a bit more about these camps that you go to, where they're like specifically designed for kind of weight loss? Because I think, I think there are things like that in the UK, but I think they're definitely not so much a thing. But Am I right, like in the US, is that more a kind of common thing? Because I know just generally kind of that camp culture is just very much the kind of norm, isn't it? That not necessarily going off to camp to lose weight, well, going off to camp in the summer is very much just part of the kind of childhood experience
1: in the US. It certainly can be. I mean, it's definitely mm. a privilege to be able to do it. And some community centers, et cetera, have their own more accessible summer programming. Cause the reality is, is that mm. most occupations, most parents are still working in the summer and may need childcare when school is not in session. And there are really great ways to facilitate that childcare. Without naming this particular camp that I attended, the, yeah, there are specialty specialty camps for just about everything. And I also had really positive summer camp experiences that had nothing to do with weight or weight loss, and were much more, you know, social. What you'd envision a summer camp to be, where you're, you know, playing sports mm. or canoeing on a lake and swimming, or you know, the things the stereotypical what you'd see in a movie. And I had those experiences and was very fortunate to have those experiences, but my older sister before me had gone to two different camps in an attempt to lose weight. And when she was struggling with her eating disorder in that way at that time, and the first camp was actually so commercialized and glorified that it was featured on MTV. That's just how normalized it was, and they called it, they called the special, there were two specials of it. And it was called fat camp, that it was just normalized that you could mm. pay a lot of money and go to a summer camp to learn to starve yourself. You'd work out around the clock all day as like what was purported to be activities and through over-exercise and severe restriction, you would go in overweight and come out smaller, whatever that was. And it was horrible. (laughs) And I knew a few people that went to that particular camp and every single year or summer, they would go back to that camp because their bodies would reject. You can't keep that up around the clock. So you, you know, Mm. and it's, and we're not, and we're not supposed to. So their bodies would reject that weight loss and, the weight would come back, whether that was through disordered eating or not, it would come back. So a vicious cycle would start. And then there was this other camp that my sister attended and it was under the guise of wellness. You know, they said, you know, we'll, we'll teach you a sustainable eating plan and we've incorporated incorporated. cognitive cognitive behavioral therapy. And, you know, they said all the right things And while it was probably less inherently dangerous at the onset than the first camp, the premise itself is so disordered and fat phobic and making profit off of what is very often, not not always, but what is very often people struggling with eating disorders Mm -hmm. by teaching them and helping them to further their eating disorder in everything but name. But my sister went and came back and seemed happier because at that point in her eating disorder, her ed, her eating disorder told her, you need to lose weight to be happy. So I wanted that too, because my eating disorder was telling me the exact same thing. So Mm. I went and I came back smaller. I equated smaller with better. And then I returned for a second summer to as messed up as it was to be a mentor they had a mentorship program mm-hmm. to be a mentor to other young women struggling with the same issues or the same part of their journey but that journey was never addressed it was all about restricting and purging through exercise and it it was a very scary thing and i you know i definitely learned really awful and you know i learned some truly stereotypical eating disorder, some very common eating disorder behaviors through people I met at that camp, just doing mm. me different things for how to lose more weight. And that's really horrifying what happened in those in those dorms. So I really
0: I know mm. that that
1: exacerbated my the escalation of my eating disorder, and that's very much what I see as where I transitioned from having a disorder relationship with food and a distorted body image to having an eating disorder and seeing it as an addiction but I didn't learn to call it that until years later
0: Mm, it's fascinating isn't it actually that like I guess again these camps are created with this kind of good intention but it's almost like a kind of a hot house isn't it of, I just sort of think putting you know lots of people together that are really struggling and with all this focus on restriction and over exercise and I would imagine you'll be sort of talking about food and exercise all day long every day all
1: day <laughs> every day even like the evening activities for after dinner usually involved movement that like you and then there were optional activities that started as early as 5 a.m that it it Mm. They really fed into, they really created a culture of if you want it, you can achieve it, but how hard are you willing to work for it to the point where there was a summer where I had been the second summer, I was really excited to do some sort of like mini triathlon, something geared towards teens, which can be a celebration of physical ability. Definitely not saying anything against triathlons, but they Mm. were going to take us you know, out of, out of camp for that, for the people who wanted to do it. And I was training for that. And I did so much that I passed out and I did so much that I wasn't, I wasn't losing weight because my body shut down. My body said, no, mm-hmm. my body said you're doing way too much, but I, no one talked to me about body cues. No one said you're not eating enough. They just told me I had to sit out of activities and never discussed why.
0: Yeah. No, it sounds like there's just like a whole kind of emotional kind of psychological part missing, wasn't there, from, you know, these programs. Are they still kind of still running today? Or or have they been adapted at all? You know, are you aware? I had heard, and this was through the grapevine,
1: I had heard that there was a class action lawsuit against the program that I attended. Mm. I never looked deep enough into it to know whether that was something I should be involved with, or it felt Mm. a lot like opening a door to something that, that I felt more like lucky to have survived and not had gone deeper down that rabbit hole. I'm only still connected with one friend recently reconnected with one person who I met through that program. And she has also healed her relationship with food. And interestingly enough, there are a lot of parallels In our journey, and I'm just excited to be reconnected with her. We both recognize that camp for what it was, Mm. and I think are just grateful to be in a very different time in our life where we can
0: see that as something we never want to do again. Yeah, no, I'm sure. So Laura, as well, can you tell us as well a bit more about your inpatient treatment stay? So you had? did Did you say you had a six week stay in the inpatient unit?
1: Yeah. There was no hard and fast set number of weeks that you needed to stay. I think six weeks was around the minimum you would need to really complete their initial treatment cycle for you and have you move through different parts of the program. But I went to a facility that was based in dialectical behavioral therapy or DBT, because that was the type of therapy I was using to manage my mental health anyway with with my therapist at home mm. and for those who are unfamiliar DBT is very much related to CBT which i know is very prevalent in eating disorder recovery and something a lot of people have had exposure to but it's mm. largely it's it's a lesser known it's lesser known than CBT and i like to refer to it as like CBT's little cousin but it's very much based in mindfulness And awareness and mindfulness is something that comes up in a lot of eating disorder treatment programs and facilities because you learn to be more aware of your body. And that's a very painful process for so many Mm -hmm. of us because (laughs) for so many of us, our eating disorder behaviors are ways of trying to do what we see as fixing our bodies And we don't want to be acutely aware of what's there. We want to change what's there. I obviously can't speak for everybody, but based on what I've learned from the conversations I've had in the eating disorder community, that appears to be largely true. And in that time, I was in a really interesting spot in eating disorder treatment because in my time there, in my six weeks, I was the only person there who was visibly overweight. I don't use BMIs as a measure mm-hmm. of weight or an indicator of weight because they're not an accurate indicator of health, but I was definitely the only person there who had a body size that was over a conventional conventionally accepted and societally accepted body size, mm-hmm. and that was never addressed. I brought mm-hmm. it up so many times to so many staff members and explained that even in treatment, I was experiencing fat phobia. And that so much conversation came stemmed from eating food and every person with an eating disorder needs to eat eat food. There is no restriction is really not appropriate at any weight. But I didn't even know that yet. So the fact that there wasn't Mm -hmm any discussion to be had, you know, I remember saying to the residential patient advisor who was my, I had identified as my favorite at the time. I remember saying to her, I'm the only fat person here. No one on staff like knows what it's like to be me. And nobody in group is saying anything that's reflective of my experience. And I was guided through that moment, but No one had a follow up conversation with me about it, and you know, I was I was more just given a pat pat there there. And Mm. the more I immerse myself in eating disorder recovered and recovery communities in different capacities, whether that's through Instagram or seeking discussion groups, I'm realizing that that is reflective of more and more people who went through treatment in larger bodies. No one teaches Mm. you. And no one talks to you about the fact that you're going to recover in a body that is not going to be accepted by society. Like you're Mm. already there, but once you start being kind to yourself, the world isn't going to be kind to you again. Mm. And that's really, really, really hard to navigate when you're then out of treatment and on your own. So Mm. I recognize that treatment saved my life. I do because I, I really believe that it did. And I would not have been able to set down the path of my personal journey. But I think that the eating disorder treatment and eating disorder recovery community has a long way to go in addressing fat phobia, in addressing what it mm-hmm. means to recover in a larger body and what it means to navigate a fat phobic world because, you know, I lived in England for a short time and mm. the emphasis on my weight didn't change because I had changed countries. So I, I really, in so many major countries in the world, the body ideal has shifted from a more curvaceous, larger body in, in historical times to a slender body. And it's based in a beauty ideal of a thin white woman Mm -hmm. and that is not something that
0: everyone can fit into we don't all pour into the same mold that's so true isn't it and I think it just brings up such a valid point of just how incredibly isolating and how alone that you would feel you know in that like treatment center where you feel like You haven't got other people around you that can relate to the experience, but also it sounds like probably the staff were struggling to know how to navigate that as well in a helpful and supportive way. Absolutely. I really felt like the treatment center I was
1: at, I felt was highly reflective of the widespread perception of eating disorders as a thin white woman's issue that I really saw that reflected and and it leads to larger conversations about, especially in America where, you know, our healthcare system is, is privatized and we really have to have meaningful conversations about who has access to treatment Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: what flags an eating disorder, because I also hear from people who are underweight that they are dismissed by their doctors and, you know, told that they're healthy because it doesn't say underweight on the BMI, but they may not have eaten in in days. So I think there's real reform to be done both in the American healthcare system and in general, in many countries, I would actually probably say most countries because our global relationship with weight and bodies appears to be constantly fluctuating and never reflective of the people living in those countries which is really quite scary but i really just feel feel like we really need to examine who gets identified as having an eating disorder and who gets treated for it which is why i'm really lucky to have in the past year also taken up with as an ambassador for project heal which is an amazing organization in the US. I'm not sure if they have international reach just yet, but they are an organization that is focused on increasing equity in eating disorder treatment and helping create and navigate pathways to treatment for that 80% of people who with eating disorders who don't have access to treatment and addressing the gaps in racial in treatment, addressing financial barriers and insurance barriers to getting treated and helping create a more equitable treatment experience. So I'm really, really grateful to be a supporter of their incredible work.
0: Yeah, no, much needed. I think, you know, the experience for people in the UK, I think is so similar to what you've experienced. And I think we're probably even more behind the US because I think it's still largely here people that actually get inpatient treatment would be very much that sort of stereotype of very emaciated, you know, a very emaciated body rather than, whereas we know that so many people, you know, have eating disorders that actually are normal weight or overweight, you know, or in, in larger bodies. And actually that the people that are emaciated, obviously they need that support too, but they represent quite a small percentage of people with eating disorders, So the majority
1: of people with eating disorders are not underweight, even on a BMI, which unfortunately is still the leading measure of health in, in the medical industry. But I just, that so many people are struggling with eating disorders and live in a body that may not appear to have anything that you would physically flag as an issue and our healthcare systems whether it's in the US or the UK don't reflect that
0: yeah no so very true and but you know it's so great that you know like Project Heal people like yourself that these issues are being spoken out more about but there's a long way to go isn't there absolutely absolutely (laughs) the work must continue it certainly must. So, Law, can you tell us a bit about sort of what happened, you know, after you came out of hospital and then sort of your journey more to the present day? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Transparently, transitioning back to university life after treatment was extremely difficult. I went through university in a much larger body and I faced So much fat phobia and weight stigma as I tried to socialize, as I tried to enter the workforce, or really even just engage in day-to-day activities. For example, I vividly remember being harassed on my college campus in the campus gym while on a treadmill and how it, it felt to have the healthy mindset around movement that I had worked so hard to achieve in treatment actively be sabotaged by a group of men. And it didn't make much sense to me because I was in a gym Mm. moving my body. So even with a disordered perception or a inaccurate perception rather of weight and wouldn't it have appeared that I was there to better myself, even, you know, you can't see me doing air quotes around better myself, but wouldn't Mm. it have appeared that I was there to do exactly what they were making fun of me for not doing. I was years later, I'm still blown away Mm. that that could have been a situation because the dialectic there, the just the disparity there between what was happening and what I was feeling. It just doesn't, it still doesn't make sense to me. So I realized there were no, there was no doing anything right in my larger Mm. body and that, That was awful because I was really there. I was walking on a treadmill, listening to my favorite playlist. Mm. And then as the song changed, I could hear the horrible thing that this group of men was saying about me. Mm. And it just destroyed me. And that's just one example. So, you know, against all odds, I did eventually manage to graduate and I secured a job that I was truly so excited about teaching special education in Baltimore. And I was thrilled to be moving to a new city and to have a fresh start. And I knew I would be beginning that job about a year after I secured it. So I set about ensuring that I would be starting over having put all that I had into being my happiest self. And at this point, you know, I was living with one of my closest friends from college in an apartment near the university as he finished his degree, and I had achieved a balanced and healthy relationship with food and movement. I was moving for me not to lose weight, just for my mental health and because I enjoyed certain types of movement. We were, most nights we made dinner together because we really appreciated and enjoyed the same food and we both like to cook this friend and I and unfortunately I was still living in a body that was so deeply physically inhibited by weight mm-hmm. and I don't mean in the sense that society was unkind to me which I don't want to minimize in any way because I really cannot emphasize enough how devastating it can be to have to navigate a world that was not designed to include you, no matter what the reason is for that. And that is, you know, people in larger bodies are systemically oppressed. But I was experiencing severe chronic pain. I had difficulty with my mobility. And I had actually developed two major health conditions that couldn't be resolved without weight loss that they were a direct result of my extreme weight gain and one of those was a neurological condition and that that really scared me because my vision was affected and i think that was a huge wake up call because i had i had really been working so hard at this point for years you know it was my first year of college that i went to treatment and We're now talking about a year out of university. So I, you know, we're looking at about a four year time span between treatment and this point, but I was noticing warps in my vision. I was having extreme constant headaches. Turns out I had developed a condition as a direct result of the weight I was carrying that mimicked the symptoms of a, of a tumor, of a brain tumor without there actually being a tumor. So I can't really express how scary that is to have episodes of blindness and and ringing in your ears and headaches so debilitating that you need to sit down or I fell down quite a few times and that was just one of the ways I was experiencing pain and that in conjunction with having really understood that I was in a place where I was eating intuitively I was moving intuitively, listening to my body with all of that understanding and the recognition that my weight was having a severe impact on my health, whether I had learned to love myself or not, my mm. physical health was deteriorating, which isn't the case for everybody at a high weight or people who are, who are really thriving and who are healthy and health at every size is a real and Incredible thing that I hope more and more practitioners and doctors begin to understand and move towards accepting. But for me, it wasn't the case, and my body was not meant to be the size that it was at. I began to explore the root of bariatric surgery, which is definitely a taboo, I would say, mm. in a lot of circles, especially in circles that are based in in fat acceptance and and self love and health at every size. Bariatric surgery is a type of surgery that does inherently restrict the amount of food you will be able to eat in a lot of cases for the rest of your life it is a permanent alteration to your digestive system so it is not an exploration that I began lightly because mm-hmm. my recovered self at that point I did consider myself fully recovered from my eating disorder and in in that maintenance stage of recovery I was like, wow, that's a, (laughs) there's a disconnect here. (laughs) I have worked so hard to eat when I'm hungry and stop when I'm full, but my body doesn't even recognize hunger and fullness anymore because I've lived for so many years without those cues through my eating disorder behaviors. So I, I was Mm. both trying to eat intuitively, but not able to at the same time physically. And like I said, it's just bariatric surgery is this incredibly complicated avenue for someone with an eating disorder, whether they're recovered or not. And I got to days before my surgery date when that neurological issue that I mentioned, an autoimmune disorder that I have that has absolutely nothing to do with weight, those flared up at the same time. And my surgery was deemed too great of a risk. And I grieved. I just mourned because I had done so much work to understand that I wasn't going to have this inherently better life because I was going to be smaller. I Mm. was going to be working to be in less pain and resolve a really dangerous situation that I was in. And it takes a lot of time to go down that route, especially with the American insurance system. You know, it, it takes the better part of a year to even get yeah. close to the table. You take classes, you make sure that you understand the risk. You have to get professional psychological clearance. And there's a lot of hoops you jump through nutrition, counseling, etc. And I went through all of that and I was just so excited to be out of pain. And I, my surgery was canceled and I, I just couldn't I didn't know that I was going to recover from that. Actually. I really, I was really scared that I was going to relapse in my eating disorder recovery. And Mm -hmm. that, that was a scary time. I I thankfully was able to really call upon my support system in particular, my partner. And he's, I mean, he's been incredible and every single part of this that I've spoken about since (laughs) like discovering I even had an eating disorder in high school, we've been together through all of that. So he, he has been my number one supporter and has seen me through so many changes just in my being changes that have nothing to do with weight about one and a half years later, though, after having moved to Baltimore and started my teaching journey, undergoing chemotherapy for my autoimmune disease and just overcoming countless challenges and maintaining my recovery, I did end up having that surgery about three years Mm -hmm. after I had first set out trying to do it. And I'm proud to say that now I'm about a year and a half out from that surgery, and I'm still living an unrestricted life of balance. I am able to listen to my body, to hear and respond to hunger and fullness cues and movement and rest cues. There are no more shoulds and should nots. But I really want to make sure that I'm clear to anybody listening that surgery didn't do any of that for me. Recovery did. It would not Mm. have been possible without eating disorder recovery. And I definitely don't want anyone listening to this to hear like bariatric surgery is this great magical weight loss cure that will also solve my relationship with food because it will not it's dangerous to do without having healed yourself first and putting in that self-work because that ultimately is fully independent of weight.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, it's a very clear message, isn't it? And I think Laura as well, you know, just hearing your story, it sounds as though that was not a decision that you took at all lightly and it required a lot of like, you know, thought and consideration, didn't it? And it sounds as well as though your, you know, your physical health and I guess your mental well-being as well was seriously compromised. You know, like, I think when you're talking about like like losing your vision and things like that, I mean, quite, quite frightening sort of symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even now
1: today, I mean, I'm speaking to you now in a much more body that's much closer to a societal standard of beauty and acceptance, right? And I we'll talk about on the Instagram page we discussed, I'll, you know, in my stories often send clear messages about health at every size and against fat phobia and discussing weight stigma. And I feel like a huge hypocrite because I had bariatric surgery, which again, is this in surgery that is inherently designed to make me smaller. And it's something where I often feel an obligation to over-explain myself and my journey. And I'm really Mm -hmm. working on doing less of that because I'm really confident in the amount of work that I put into making sure that, as you said, I didn't take this decision at all lightly. And it was a decision made with an informed mindset and a team who had been working with me for years to achieve to help me achieve my recovery, they all signed off on this and said, you know, this is something that we actually feel you can do successfully while maintaining your recovery. And that is going to be challenging, but you, you can do this. And without that clearance, I, I don't think I'd have done it. I, I would have,
0: mm. I, life would be very different. Yeah, no, sure. I mean, I think it's it's so interesting, isn't it? Because I think there's so many things there about, you know, one, you having that support system and having really thought it through very carefully. And obviously as well with people that have known you for quite a long time, and I guess could really offer you wise counsel and support from really kind of knowing you. And I think as well, the fact that you've worked with on your relationship with food is just you know just so absolutely key because I can just think of people that have, I've worked with in therapy who have had surgery without you know having that opportunity or even perhaps knowing that they they needed to work on the relationship mm-hmm. with food and it's put them in a really difficult place and you know sometimes and there'll be more complications and like you said as well, it's kind of, there's no going back, is there, once you've had surgery, it's kind of life changing, you're physically kind of changing how your gut is working. Absolutely. It is dangerous to have
1: this surgery without a clear understanding of your relationship with food, because ultimately you can cause yourself physical harm internally in different ways. There are different ways you could do it. And unfortunately, this particular surgery has become commercialized and glamorized in a way that's quite predatory, in my opinion, you know, Mm -hmm. through shows that I don't, I don't even know if they're, if they air in the UK, but there are shows like, I mean, my 600 pound life showcases this surgery and that's a show here. And Mm -hmm. it, it does, it does center around really extreme, extreme instances of people living in larger bodies who's, Mobility is impacted and they may be experiencing other health issues, but it really shows like a very quick and expedient way through that process, because a lot of those people need this surgery as a life-saving measure.
0: Mm. but
1: there isn't much conversation about the mental health piece of things, and I, I just I really struggle with, I think the lack of education and understanding out there, even just the fact that people refer to it as weight loss surgery, um, Mm. as opposed to bariatric surgery, that's in and of itself predatory because of of course people with a disordered relationship with food or body dysmorphia are going to hear that and think, well, I want to lose weight. Is it as simple as a surgery? Mm. And that's just not the case in this instance. There are no magic fixes to heal one's relationship with themselves or with food.
0: Yeah, no, so true. And I think, you know, it's just so helpful, Law, I think, with the journey you've been on as well, and just to hear you communicating that message really powerfully, because I think, again, I can think of people that I've worked with that have literally gone, you know, to another country and had this kind of for a week and had this surgery with no proper sort of introduction or, or sort of psychology and, and no real follow-up either. And it, like you're saying, I mean, I think the word predatory as well is just really appropriate. I just think, yeah, not good at all.
1: No, I'm with you. Unfortunately, there's an entire reality and this, this is, you know, I feel strongly about this for a whole other podcast. There's an unfortunate reality of the fact that preying on our insecurities in our bodies, whether those are based in an eating disorder or diet culture or anything else that is a for-profit industry. And it's a huge Mm, one, whether that's coming from doctor's offices in America and privatized insurance, or whether that's just coming from the so-called guilt-free products on shelves the diet culture industry is literally requires us to hate ourselves because ultimately when you've achieved food freedom, you don't need guilt-free food because food mm. doesn't carry guilt anymore. And, mm. and, and that's something that you don't, unfortunately, you don't have to have an eating disorder to fall susceptible, to be susceptible and fall prey to that carefully built industry that is working to really hone in on and capitalize on our insecurities. And that's a very scary thing because so many people don't realize that it's happening. I know I didn't for most of my life.
0: Yeah, I think it's something, isn't it? That it's almost like a kind of religion that you're indoctrinated with from birth Mm -hmm. really, aren't you? Through all these unconscious and conscious messages. Yeah, it's sort of yeah, so so powerful. Yeah, we do just almost take all a lot of so many of those beliefs as just kind of normal, don't we? It's only kind of when we start doing this kind of work, we start to kind of question them and to take a step back and to realize actually just how toxic it all is. Um, Absolutely.
1: I mean, I'm no expert. This is the active rejection of diet culture is a is a fundamentally newer part of my journey that I can be recovered from my eating disorder and maintaining my recovery and still be learning simultaneously. You know, there, there's mm. no, and I have to be, I have to be constantly learning. And I read, I read this book and I highly, highly recommend checking out this book. Actually, if you're someone who's dieted, whether you're struggling with an eating disorder or not, am I allowed to say something profane yeah. if it's in the title of the book? Yeah. They okay. So this book is called the fuck it diet. And Caroline Dooner, is it? Yes. Caroline mm. Duner. And she, mm. that is the book I would say that moved me from being in eating disorder recovery to actively rejecting diet culture. Mm. And there are quite a few, you know, people and activists and, and just body positive, incredible people out there just, in social media alone that are really have served as influence to actively reject diet culture and can do it in an inherently positive way. Like one of my favorite Instagram accounts is called the nutrition tea, like T E A. The person who runs that account is I believe a registered dietitian and is just a health at every size informed dietitian who has this very positive way of delivering a very anti diet message and it's been a really cool thing as i said you know social media as a whole instagram in particular is is newer for me and following these accounts you know you control what's on your feed so you can ultimately create a space that is largely safe and i haven't had that experience in the past because i had only used social media like facebook as a personal means but Caroline Duner's book really really moved me towards a space where I was like yeah I can actively reject diet culture
0: and that's awesome. Well that's fantastic to hear and I, I'll put like Caroline's book and also the nutrition tea reference as well in the show notes actually if people want to check those out.
1: Oh uh, yeah please do they're I mean they're just two of many many Yeah, people who I just really respect in this space. And I, you know, I I also think when people write a book, buy it. Caroline is very clear about that on her page, you won't get even though she has a page, she has a podcast, Mm -hmm. you got to buy the book, it's so worth it. And it's, it's all the things that even having recovered, I didn't know I needed to read. And it's not specifically for people with eating disorders, anyone, I wish everyone would read this book. I wish I had enough money that I could just hand it out on the street as I walk down the street. Mm. uh, Caroline, in the unlikely event
0: that you're listening to this, thank you for the (laughs) diet. I'm looking forward to your next book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I think so many people have found that book just invaluable. So, Laura, where can people find you if they want to connect with you? Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. I am on Instagram as the healthy, happy cook. And that's really my public platform at this time for interacting with folks. I have a really lovely and supportive community there. I have this tagline where I I say I'm keeping the food and everything else real in my bio, and I really mm-hmm. really try to stand by that that I'm living in in food freedom, and this is inherently a food page. But there's so much going on in the world that I can't, I don't feel I can have a public platform and ignore everything going on in the world. So that's my little disclaimer of, Mm -hmm. you know, my stories are eclectic, but important. But my feed, you know, my posts have simple recipes, but are ultimately meant to celebrate my relationship with food. My stories are more often where I will share recovery reflections and insights into just I don't know if I'm eating an ice cream I particularly enjoy. It might prompt a reflection of like, gosh, I remember when I was really, really afraid of ice cream and (laughs) how different things are now because food freedom is ultimately the most, I was more liberated by food freedom than I was by bariatric surgery is what I'll say. You know, the size of my body changing
0: was not the most impactful part of my recovery. Mm. Sure. Well, such a powerful message, law, And I'm sure that you'll have people reaching out to you, you know, who will have just really connected to your story and everything you've shared.
1: Oh my gosh, please do. I, (laughs) the coolest part about having this page has been um, the community and just the conversations I've gotten to have with people in my DMs. You know, I, I didn't expect people to come into my DMs and open up about their own journeys, but I, receive lots of messages every day from people who follow me for a whole different variety of reasons. Some people just want recipes and are really comfortable in where they're at. And other people are looking for the same inspiration that I draw from larger accounts of people who are professionals in the recovery space. So I really love having a very diverse and open and supportive community on my
0: page. So I am looking forward to hopefully hearing
1: from some listeners.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much, Law, for coming on the podcast today and for sharing your story and, you know, your incredible journey. Thank you so much for having
1: me. It was really a pleasure and I'm humbled to be able to share,
0: you know, how I got to, how I got to here. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did do go and check out all of Laura's details in the show notes if you're not following me already do seek me out on instagram at the eating disorder therapist and if you're looking for further support in your relationship with food do go to my website which is www.theeatingdisordertherapist.co.uk and that has details of my online courses and breakthrough days I'd also really appreciate if you've enjoyed this episode, if you could rate and review the podcast as it really helps it reach more listeners. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening today. And I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon.